Welcome to another episode of Doctors and Must. I'm Dr. Masi Korir. Today we have a friend of mine for very many years, at least 10 years now, Dr. Victor Ngani. He is passionate about critical care from the days that I used to work with him in one of the private hospitals here in Kenya to what he's doing now. I know he's very passionate about critical care. He's passionate about rights of the patient, rights of the doctor. He's passionate about family and we'll be getting to hear all of this from him. Dr. Welcome. Thank you, Masi. Uh, good morning. So Dr. Ngani was the founding chair of KMPDU, Kenya Medical Practitioners and Pharmacists and Dentist Union. But before we get to that, um, Dr. is a chess champion. <laughs> how did, yes, yes, yes. How did you get to be crowned a chess champion? This was in 2018. 2018, that's correct. Yes. Um, so there's an annual chess tournament that happens, brings up, uh, brings together everyone who plays chess. And um, it's a national championship. If you win that event, you uh, are crowned national champion. But it's uh, an extremely tough event. Um, winning the event is just one part of the story. The truth is that before I went for the event, I met my pastor, Pastor Milton Jumba. And he said a prayer and prayed that I'd win the tournament. And so it happened. And then uh, be, be behind that is, of course, many, many years of experience and practice. I learned chess in high school, which is very late, by the way. And then I met a friend of mine, Dr. Kevin Somondi, who uh, initially asked me to, uh, you know, just play with him. If I were to win or get a draw, he'd give me quite some amount of money. I thought that was exciting. Uh, long story short, he beat me every single game we played. And Baron move four five. You tell me now, this will never win because it break my pawn structures. And um, as a result of that, you know, I got very curious. How can you tell? How can you predict the future so well? And uh, he introduced me to the concept of opening play, opening theory, chess preparation, tactics, professional chess. And I took to that like uh, you know, uh, became a passion. Mm -hmm. So I've been interested in chess for a very long time. Uh, career took me away from chess, and I had a chance in 2017, 2018 to come back. And by God's grace, I was able to win the national championship. Mm -hmm. And the same year again, uh, I represented my country in the World Chess Olympiad in Georgia. Uh, so yes, I can say I've served my country, uh, flying uh, national colors in uh, World Chess Olympiads. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, fascinating. So do you have to study? Okay, I, I've watched a movie where chess was the theme of the whole, I think it's the Queen's Gambit. is a limited series. So do you really have to put in effort, time, read, study to be able to win? You do have to do that. Um, Masi, I, uh, the volumes on chess are broader than the volumes in medicine. I have read a lot of chess books. I've watched a lot of videos. Um, do you know that uh, for in one chess game, the number of possible combinations of moves are more than the atoms in uh, the non-universe. Oh, really? That's true. So there's, it's, it's very wide, a lot of knowledge to be to be to be acquired, and uh, in some way, as Africans, we are at a disadvantage because uh, when I was going to the Olympiad, for example, I met some grandmasters, and you're surprised that I was a doctor and doing chess at the same time because for them, uh, they identified this talent very early on, uh, from around the age of four, age of five. And then they dedicate maybe uh, 8 to 14 hours a day, every day for 10 years plus to learn this material. And that's the competition that we're playing against. Um, of course, Africans are blessed in other ways. And so uh, over time, we're able to bridge some of these gaps. But yes, you have to read a lot uh, mm -hmm. to to get to uh, this level. You have to prepare many, many hours. Mm -hmm. I remember for the Olympia, they put in 500 hours. 
um, approximately uh, for us to I mean to just make that uh, that presentation makes sense. And it's this 500 hours that contributed to my winning the national championship at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, congratulations. Is this why then that your daughter is taking after you, you're picking that early so that she can you know, have more than the 500 hours? Yes, it's true. And But also, not just that. Um, the, the truth is that chess teaches you some things in life. Uh, the synergies between chess and life that really are useful in decision-making, in uh, judgment, in understanding that every single thing has a consequence. You know, there's, there are these things I talk about the pawn being just a pawn. But when you play chess seriously, you understand that pawns are the soul of chess. And uh, the small things, as small as they are, they can become queens and actually become queens in future. It teaches you not to despise anything and to make use of every single resource, to understand that you can't control your fate. And before you make a step, it can look flashy. There are consequences to that, and those consequences sometimes are hidden. And therefore, sit on your hands a little bit, pause, think through it, and then make a decision that you think is best. And so this ability to think methodically, to plan, to strategize, to understand that there are consequences, and to make a decision that delays gratification, uh, this is something you can teach children very early on. And uh, there are many studies now that have shown that learning chess at an early age allows you to perform better in school, to cope better with life, it's competition. Again, there is need for all of us to have some pastime. This is a really healthy one. Mm-hmm. And um, I've seen that in my daughter, and she's amazing. She's gifted at it. She's really, really good. There are things she's already doing better than I am in chess, and I'm excited about it. That's the 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. And then I have the, the 4-year-old who was playing in a tournament this weekend and uh, got two points out of six, which is way beyond my wildest dreams. And for her, it's because she's seeing her elder sister, and she wants to do it. So I'm quite excited about their future. I see you having uh, grandmasters from your household. Uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Actually, more than grandmasters, I'm fairly convinced Tello will become a world champion. Mm-hmm. If you listen to this podcast, Tello, this is how far back I knew you'd be a world champion. <laughs> Amazing. And um, in the previous interview that we did, and I found this very, um, is it amazing, fascinating, that uh, Ariana, your eldest daughter, um, s- talked very highly of you and... Um, Basically, you are her role model. And we are in a situation where, you know, we are told, you know, your first role models are your parents. So what is it that you want your daughters to pick after you? Well, I listened back. At the time that Ariane was being uh, interviewed, I was not uh, there in the room at that time because I wanted her to speak freely. And I looked back and uh, almost a tear came to my eye because she said, one of the things she alerted was that I have integrity. Yes, it's and, full uh, of integrity. Uh, that struck me, and I'm super happy to hear my daughter say that independently. And I know she means it. Because it's something that has recurred over and over, and it's been a choice I made very early on. You see, um, I've had positions of responsibility. And um, um, I think for our country, we have to see beyond the now. A lot of people use these opportunities to make themselves rich, you know, earn money and this money they don't even need in the first place. And once we change this, when we change this grid as a society, we'll generally be better. That's the truth of it. People are struggling. People are hustling. You know, you see someone who has children, he's walking through the street carrying things in his back. He's, he, the same city we live in, he's trying to just make ends meet, go to hostel, ensure the child has education. I listened to a parent who was talking about uh, going without meals so that the children can have fees, you know, living on a meal a day. And that's a reality, you know. So um, to be able to hear my child speak so highly of integrity 
I think for me that's just uh, that's it. It means that something that I'm doing, I'm doing it right. And I thank God for that opportunity and that capacity. I understand that uh, to some degree the fact that I've, I've become a doctor, I've had these opportunities then means we're a bit more privileged in ability and therefore I may afford more things in terms of time and sometimes just some flexibility that may not be there for every parent. But uh, wherever you are as a parent, just make some time to impart uh, good values on your children. Mm-hmm. Mm. Doctors tend to be very busy, and especially somebody like you in mm-hmm. critical care, you never know when you are needed. Mm-hmm. How do you then make that time for your family? Um, it's been ext- actually this COVID season has been the worst of them all because um, you'd be my daughter sleep quite early, and uh, you're in hospital. You're supposed to leave uh, sometime maybe around six, and uh, you have resuscitations, you have uh, intubations, and you're leaving the hospital maybe past midnight, past one, and you're supposed to go back early. Uh, I think that happens. You have to embrace that. But one of the things I've tried to do is to ensure that uh, Saturday in particular is family day. And so it's Sunday, and whenever I can, I come home early. I don't uh, do two jobs, or three. I, j- I just do one job. I work at RFH Healthcare, that's it. I don't work anywhere else. I don't run a private clinic. This is all I do. And the free time, then I'm able to invest heavily in my children's future. Uh, people talk about inheritance, and that's important, but I think the greatest gift a parent can give a child is to empower them and make them the best they can be. And this is the exact same thing I'm doing with my children. Um, I know they're gifted in chess. They're gifted in other things as well. Music. Uh, Hera can sew. I mean, she does. A, she's, uh, she's, the bag she uses, uh, she made that herself. So to give them this capacity really is a tremendous gift uh, to them and perhaps just show them from by example what can be done. It's not al- it doesn't always work. Um, but I found joy in being with my family. And uh, my free time, 99% of the time, is just family time. Mm-hmm. Mm. Is this uh, from your own upbringing, uh, seeing what your grandfather did, your father's passion for education? Is this like now being passed down from one generation to the next? The value of education, I would say yes, and also uh, the place of God in life, I'd say yes, because my grandfather was brilliant in... Uh, his view of uh, what can I say? The in view, his view of um, of God's place, and he actually donated land to a church and helped found the church that then brought us up. And he would pray extensively. We'd fall asleep when he was still praying for all of us. And I saw miracles from my grandfather's prayers. And I think that because of who he was, we still benefit from the blessings of God uh, in our lives today. Um, but then there are things that you modify individually as you go along, as you become your own person, then there are some things you pick up. And uh, I want to say that um, perhaps a, a lot of the personal touch just hanging around the children, that's been uh, something that we've had to, um, you know, innovate uh, if I use that word. Um, don't be mistaken, I'm still a strict disciplinarian and my daughters know this, so they know their boundaries as well. Uh, but we also try and empower them and allow them to thrive as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Going to um, this area from family to the union. Um, was the founding of KMPDU um, deliberate or was it circumstances forced? the emergence of this union that you call it the consequential union of our time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the most consequential union of this generation. And actually, it was just circumstances. We never set out to form a founder union. If I tell you, what happened was, uh, in 2010, the ministry stopped postgraduate training. So a lot of doctors in in the public sector, they uh, would stay in the public sector despite the low salaries. I'll tell you what it was. They take home for a doctor who didn't have any loans or deductions. If you're not in a rib, it was about 40-something thousand, maybe 50,000. 
if you are a specialist and you're a surgeon or a cardiac surgeon, you'd probably take home 90,000. That was in 20, uh, 2010, thereabout. But many doctors would uh, bear this because uh, they were promised prosthetic training for those who hadn't uh, specialized. Uh, then in 2010, the government said, you don't have money for this. We cannot support this. We are scrapping that. So the doctors who had been selected for this training, uh, they went to petition the ministry. The ministry said no. So one day they asked that we just go by the ministry as a team uh, physically and have a discussion and see if they'd allow us, you know, they'll reinstate that training. And uh, my friend, Dr. Peter Mika, called me and uh, we went to the Atuafia house. Uh, we waited for some time. There were just about 20 of us there about. Uh, and the ministry guys just came and said, no, we've listened to what you're saying, but uh, really uh, we are not going to do anything about this. We, we are so not done able deal. to... The done decision deal has, been, has made. been made. And we felt it was quite unfair. And uh, we felt it's important... You know, we are going through much, uh, through a lot as doctors. So it's important for us to just come together and let people know this is the situation. Let us bring doctors together and try and get this postgraduate training reinstated. That's where it started. But then as we congregated, we understood that the same pains we had, they existed. We just weren't speaking about them because as doctors, we're focusing on treatment. People are really being poorly paid. I was living in an SQ, by the way. That's what I could afford, 7,500 shillings. And that was the case for everybody else. And um, we... We realized it shouldn't always be like this. 80% of the doctors were leaving the country by the third year mm -hmm. to other places. Why must it be that way? So we said, okay, let's come together, let people know what's going on. And that's where the convention started. We ended up having some press conferences. Dr. Onyimbo Kerama arranged for something in Thika. We, Dr. George got on the team. And we sort of planned a demonstration, you know, just to highlight the plight of doctors and the state of healthcare because it was really bad as well. And uh, the first... A demonstration, I think, had just about six doctors in Uru Park. Mm -hmm. The second one had a little, a little bit more, slightly, maybe 20. I can't remember the exact number, but 20 something. around yeah. 20 something, actually. And it's in this second demonstration that we then went all the way to um, Treasury. And on the way, we met uh, Mr. Tolly, the the SG of Kotu. And he told us that it's better for you, for us to organize ourselves in a union as opposed to this uh, this grouping because a union is a better vehicle. And I, I remember on Facebook we called it United Against the Poor, poor Peer of doctors. doctors. Yes, yes, yes. So what had happened is that there were many groups that were in play at that time. So when this convention started, then we used all the forums, including that particular group because back then the salary of doctors was 50,000. If you have no loans, no deductions, you don't have help, that's what you're taking home. And you can imagine the same competition. I was looking back at our school and uh, many of the people People who were not doctors now from the school where we were, that's what they were paying their servants, you know, their, their, <laughs> their servants. And here we are trying to make uh, ends meet and you've really spent a much longer time in school. It, it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But nonetheless, uh, we were able to form the union as a result. And um, uh, even that wasn't easy, by the way. We didn't have any money. So initially we called doctors to, uh, you know, just uh, allocate maybe a thousand shillings. Uh, we thought if 3,000 of us contributed, we'd have 3 million to do something. Only about 120 contributed. I think you're one of them, Dr. Massey. Mm -hmm. And uh, this 120, from this one, 20,000, we built KMPDU into what it is today. Mm -hmm. And for that, I'm really proud because as a consequence, number of doctors has grown. Back then, we had 2,334 doctors in the public sector. Mm -hmm. Now we have close to 6,000. And Kenya has become... 
a also a sort of a place where doctors are leaving their countries to come to Kenya. In the past, it used to be South Africa, Botswana, uh, taking up everyone from Kenya. But now doctors are coming from India, uh, from Uganda, from other African countries, even from Cuba. They're coming into Kenya now because the space looks better. And I want to say that shouldn't be the end. Actually, it's possible for us to retain the best medical brains in the world within this country. Mm-hmm. But we have to understand why that's important, prioritize that, and invest in that. Of course with that kind of uh, position requires responsibility from the doctors as well to ensure that the same service we can give in a, p- a private facility that same service must be given to the client in the public facility meaning we must be present we must give back to community for the salaries that we earn as a result mm-hmm. usually the accusation against many doctors is that um the doctor and i think there've been memes around this the doctor that you see in the private hospital will be friendly, will be polite, but the one that you see in the public hospital, the same person is very different. Yeah, um, I think that is uh, not necessarily the case for everybody. And I've seen fantastic doctors in the public public sector. And uh, there are many factors that go around this. Um, I remember this one doctor who was the only doctor in that that place in Bita at the time. And um, she would work the whole weekend. You know, you you. Whereas I have ten patients, I can spend thirty minutes with every relative explaining to you what's going on. When I go to a place where I have a hundred patients or two hundred patients, I can only spare two minutes to explain what it is that I'm explaining. I may not even have time. That's one factor. But I also understand that there are people who generally give very little to the public sector and their salary, and I think that is criminal as well, and that has to be stopped. I think that conversation has already started. Doctor groups are talking about this thing, and I know that in due course, uh, alignments will be made. But of course, if there's need for us to be a bit more direct about it, including introduce consequences, that has to be done. Because the idea behind the union was not just to retain doctors, but to build the health system. In fact, KMPD was founded on two pillars. The first pillar was the welfare of doctors, but secondly, very importantly, was to improve healthcare provision, especially in the public sector. And I think that vision has not been lost up to this date. If you look at the first strike, we had only two or three things related to salary of doctors. Uh, there were 13 items. I think about nine or 10 were dealing with um, public uh, infrastructure. In fact, as a consequence of that, in February of 20, uh, 2012, we had a task force that was... The, the Muslim Muslim, task force. Exactly. And we really put down some really good steps that could be taken to ensure that public hospitals work. Masi, I'm digressing a lot because it's a personal discussion, but really there is no reason whatsoever why you cannot have the same level of service in public hospitals as you have in some of private hospitals. Look at me. I'm not a foreign doctor. I didn't learn in the... I mean, I'm training doctors in critical care today. The same training, the same doctors could give the same services somewhere. This is service enabled by an individual. An individual can never out-invest government. Mm -hmm. That's a question of priorities. But I'm saddened to say that um, I think the level of... Okay, there's a lot of, there are many factors that come into play in the public sector and some of these are not useful and uh, maybe we can go back to integrity as a conversation and then focus and get that done. It also requires that we become deliberate about the kinds of leaders we have in these sectors and uh, there's a lot that can be done but we are looking for, for example, for me I've been asked to produce a PhD in finger surgery. How does that, that, how does that help, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> how does that help me? I, I have a passion for what what I want to do. But you're saying, okay, do you have a, a master's in, uh, in this particular? If you don't, then you cannot do this thing. And I think that's the kind of thing that we need to do away with and begin to focus on results and get people who can actually do something in those spaces, get it done. We become results-oriented as opposed to theory and a lot of people. Education is important. Now, it's super important. But I want us to not lose track. I think one of the greatest, uh, uh, can I use the word, lack of wisdom, the greatest sort of you become educated formally to a point where you, you cannot see broader, bigger than the, the bigger picture. And you're focused on criteria being, say, for example, a master's degree or, degree or a PhD. And therefore, you lose great leaders and great workers because you're looking for something that doesn't add value. And the example I give by and large where I say it is, the critical care I've done is worth more than two masters. But that's not what makes the difference when it comes to leadership. What makes that difference for me is that I founded a union. I have four years of experience in that particular area. I've been a medical director in MATA for uh, 30 months, medical superintendent in life care and medical director in RFH. I've been in healthcare leadership for a while. It's an area of passion. That is what you should look at. What are the results there? Not my critical care. Okay, I've been a leader there as well. Not my masters in whatever surgery I'm doing. That is not what makes a difference. Look at at what capacity is there, what's the experience, what are the results, what's the track record. Uh, that's not the case. So you'll see a lot of uh, people setting criteria, meaning that my grandfather was ridiculously brilliant, ridiculously brilliant. Zakayo Ngani himself would never have qualified to be given a job as a cleaner because you want a class eight certificate. Mm -hmm. And we have to understand that before formal education, we had Africans who never went to formal education, and they are brilliant people. We cannot say that collectively the African was not sharp enough. It's not the case. We uh, Let's shift. What we're looking for, yes, formal education gives you an indication this person could be very good, but it doesn't substitute actual performance. You can have someone with uh, sort of very glowing, I mean, papers, but mm -hmm. the reality is that the delivery is not they, as good. They cannot um, mm. do what they are tasked to do. Yeah. Um, did devolution um, help the health sector? Because you are there before devolution, mm. and as the transition to the counties was happening, you were there and you've seen it now, mm -hmm. um, several years later. Yeah. Did it? Did it help in any way? Masi, it, uh, it it's, it's a pain point. And for this, I really feel that the commissions that were given the task of implementing the constitution or seeing it through very early on really did this country a great disservice. The Committee for Implementation of the Constitution, the SRC, uh, they, they sort of didn't really support this project, even the uh, TA, traditional authority, because there was room to have practical devolution. Of, and that would have worked fantastic. If you look at the counties all, all across board, there are many places where, for the first time, you are seeing hospitals being built. Of course, the prices are ridiculous. I, that's the truth. But we are getting new hospitals from, you know, built in a long time. You're having some equipment being placed uh, in, in facilities that weren't there before. But universally, you'll find that many counties are struggling with human resource management. And it's been a really big issue. We have a situation where we have a massive shortage of, of doctors. And we have over 2,000 doctors unemployed in the country, even today as we speak. You know, so this mismatch, there was a straightforward solution. And the same solution was formed uh, by the founders of the constitution. Back in Bomas, uh, the fathers of devolution actually said, let us have something like a health services commission. But then what happened was that 
the commissions made the political agenda if you don't support the full devolution then you're anti devolution if you support it you're pro devolution and there's no room for practical devolution and they closed their minds to it it was that can i say um dogmatic way of looking at things that didn't have room for any form of um, you know gray uh, discussion and uh, we lost that fantastic opportunity um, i would say that um, overall there has there have been gains from devolution but there've also been r- serious lapses that need to be addressed and uh, if we are honest with ourselves we can sit back and then look at what hasn't worked and put in solutions that allow for devolution that is practical to work and bring benefit to the people the the issue of uh, managing the human resource in healthcare seems to be one a thorny one mm-hmm. i don't know if to call it a thorny one or is it a difficult one for people to crack is it that complex no it's not it's pretty straightforward by the way because you see the 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 discussion i think back in 2013 someone uh, came up with this argument that it's hard for you to control somebody whom you're not paying and i had that same argument in 2021 meaning that for 11 years people haven't thought of anything new despite the challenges and it's frustrating to be honest because um it comes down to one thing masi and allow me to be honest about its resources uh, the biggest budget that goes to the county is salaries for healthcare workers mm-hmm. that's the biggest budget and um if you take that out you're taking away significant resources but if we focus on what the system is meant to do then we'd understand why it's okay to this is it's not money that is meant to be used for anything else it's meant to be transmitted to the healthcare workers the county should therefore not be able to say that we do not have enough resources to hire more nurses or more doctors they should be celebrating that the 2000 doctors and all of them eager to get these doctors their solutions we have a, a cent- not really a centralized a centralized system of deployment and payment and management of human resources that is what we need just that every other item can progress uh, as it should there's a medical superintendent who's in charge administratively of that that unit that's how it was even even back then uh, if if responsibility is taken seriously and uh, the med supes for example on the county directors take charge as they should i don't expect a doctor who's not present to continue working in that sector they they're held accountable mm-hmm. but let us be let us be efficient in what we're doing we see other counties um, let me single out um, makueni mm-hmm. that seems to have gotten provision of uh, services at least to a majority of its citizens they've seemed to have gotten it right uh, people don't have to pay out of pocket and at the point of receiving services if they have been covered if one county um, was able to do that and was able to come up with something that works why is it not replicable or replicated elsewhere or even being upscaled to the entire country so that the issues that we are discussing about you know improving quality healthcare leadership in healthcare i mean that should be an example to follow um if that's the interest because the example is there but you see it comes down to the concept of leadership and um, i bet you this if you go to makweni county you you're going to find a strong leadership culture strong being is a culture focused on the people i'm 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 guessing here but i suspect this is what you're going to find and for you to replicate the same solution you must find the exact same leadership but it's very difficult when the leadership you're looking at to make these decisions is utilizing money meant for healthcare to do a personal project somewhere that's a really big factor in this masi 
when I was a young, uh, when I was a chairman of Doctors Union from SQ, I believed that <laughs> the biggest solution to healthcare was to introduce more funds, and it's partly still true. But over time, I realized that if we improved our utilization of existing funds, healthcare will be miles ahead. Look at NHIF. I focused on that organization for a long time. 2017, the best year NHIF has, has ever had. Not in terms of money raised, but in terms of benefits to the people. In 2017, NHIF was able to pay surgeries, add surgeries for any child who required. They introduced the surgical packages thing that now is still, uh, you know, being utilized. They covered MRI and we even had conversations about covering critical care and covering some tests. Same NHIF. Years before that was pretty bad and the years after haven't been as good. Maybe now we are seeing some hope because of the new team that has come in. There's hope of... It shows you that the critical step in all these things is a vision and it's um, uh, the leadership. And if you don't have that, no matter how much money you put into this process, into these spaces, you're not going to succeed. And it's worse when the same people you put in points of responsibility are responsible for taking that money out of service provision into something else. Corruption is our biggest undoing. Lack of integrity is our biggest undoing. And these guys, purpose to die rich, it's the damn, it's, I mean, you, it's crazy. And it's, it doesn't add any value. At the point of death, you're not going to use that at all. And they cost many lives. We can't change that. Uh, I could talk about this all day. Mm-hmm. But, and I know they are good leaders, but we have to find them and choose them and align them appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it goes back ultimately to the citizen, to the electorate, if I may call it that, mm-hmm. because if you are thinking about leadership and if you are taking the example from Akweni, it's the choice of the people then that matters. It is. And um, I pray I can talk about something different. The, um, th- there's this narrative that all people are corrupt and all people are thieves, so choose a lesser, lesser thief. I'm, I'm, I'm asking, if you listen to this, just change that. It's the biggest lie ever. It's like the Garden of Eden and someone's telling you that, hey, it's okay, just vote for a thief. If you know someone is a thief, strike that person out. If half the poor people in this country were thieves, this country would be uninhabitable completely. People have integrity there. There are small populations, but they're there. Choose those kinds of leaders. I recommend that we have a PIVA leader, P-I-V-A, a leader who has a passion for what they're doing. Passion means that you want to see change. You really you want to make a difference. You have integrity. You have a vision, vision to understand in the context of healthcare that it's possible for the best hospitals in this country to be public hospitals. And it is, by the way, it is. And ability. So ability now is all these things. You have the experience, you are exposed to it, you have the education that can back it up, and you can deliver the results that you have in mind. If someone doesn't have any of these things, please just tell them, okay, you know, you probably bet in something else. This is not it. And if you begin to make those decisions, we'll be in a good place. The problem must is that we as a populace, we are equally corrupt, equally corrupt. You know, someone, um, uh, I was just watching a video the other day about, you know, Kenyans siphoning fuel from tankers, then to go and resell. Right now, it's almost considered silly to not steal in your place of work. You know, um, someone wants to offer bribes to, to steal from the organizations they're working in. Any company that has collapsed now, you'll find that the workers in there that have collaborated in that collapse. And it's this culture that has to be broken. I firmly believe that it starts at the very top, that we own, okay, not necessarily, by top I mean whichever organization, uh, whether it's at a country level, whatever it is, for us to really set that right. And I pray, I know we can, and um, I, I know there's been a lot of effort even in this administration to to change that, but we have to collaborate here. And uh, it's easy to blame 
leaders but we as Kenyans we must be ready to take make a different decision see that i know i'm struggling i need money but this money that's coming my way incorrectly i have to say not wait the other day a uh, patient i treated uh, gave me sent me money <laughs> i told her don't send she sent and it came to my fuliza and i'll tell you confess sometimes i have that as well so i had to send her back you know right there and then and we had a long conversation and i know i'm not alone in that kind of a position there are many many kenyans in the same position and once we take that stand this can't be better there's enough resources for all of us we just have to understand that our culture has to be different Mm-hmm. And as you say, it starts from the top, organizational, country, but also, as you said, when we are starting and having the conversation about your daughter, also at the household level, maybe this is um, a conversation that needs to start in our own families if we are looking at the future, what kind of children, do we, what kind of adults do we want our children to be? Absolutely. Uh, I recently came across a car where the owner had uh, disabled the odometer. So it doesn't change over time. So that eventually when he's trying to sell it, it will look like it hasn't done a lot of mileage. mileage. But that's theft. So those small things we don't understand as theft. Once you begin to see it like that, we are generally better. Your child has qualified for a school, national school, and uh, the people involved organize somebody else to give somebody else that chance. That is theft. And you're stealing far worse than stealing money because you're stealing a child's future. You know, it's happening. And until we understand that these are the things that are making us stay where we are. And uh, allow me to introduce a spiritual discussion in all this. If you look at uh, the biblical teachings, you'll find the seasons when the people were doing things far from God's way and they never prospered. And when they changed everything, things were better. And you see, we are doing all these things and we are all struggling. We are still struggling. Let's change that and we'll see how much we prosper. Mm-hmm. Mm. Everyone is um, complaining about, you know, the economy. It's difficult to put food on the table, to take your child to school. I mean, things are looking more and more hard or harder as the days go by. It, it, it is harder. And... Um, there's a time I was out of work, by the way. I, let me now open this a podcast. Uh, when I left Mata, I took some time off because it's been high pressure. That. And uh, then I'd uh, applied for a job in my home county. And I looked like it was coming through. They didn't come through. So I found myself in a bit of a difficult situation. And it strikes you how hard it can be for a parent when you see your child is about to lack some things. And you can imagine I'm at a point of privilege. I've had some pretty good jobs. Um, and I can see that in the parents who are out there on the street. The onus is on us as a people, as a country, to arrange ourselves, organize ourselves within what we are collecting in terms of taxes and ensure that some things are guaranteed. Something like education, that if your child is brilliant, that child is guaranteed the best. You don't need to guarantee education for everybody. I mean, you don't have to pay the same fees for everybody. Someone who's better with their hands is not the same as someone who's going to be the greatest rocket scientist the world has ever known. We pay for that person. The guarantee that if you are unwell, if you've paid NHF, for example, you're going to get access to, to care that makes sense, not being forced to go to a facility that doesn't have, have resources. Those facilities have resources. And within existing resources, uh, Mercy, we are able to do that. We have a budget of $3 trillion. Honestly, we can do something better for our society. It can be done. 
And uh, um, when we get there, we'll see the difference. Right now, it sounds very utopian. It's not even utopian. These things can be done. Mm-hmm. These things can be done. Other countries have done it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned rocket science, and I've remembered um, that you almost detoured into <laughs> <laughs> that field. Yes, that was my my real passion. I really loved uh, building things. I've uh, always had a passion for uh, creating items. When I was in uh, first year medicine, I spent a very little time in class, I'll be honest. I uh, was uh, developing a circuit of mine, uh, which worked very well. And I had these big dreams that if this circuit works where I have in mind, then I'm able to sell it and do all these things and I can go into my space where I can build things. I loved uh, flight. I wanted to build rockets, you know, uh, build planes. It's always been uh, passion. But again, um, I had my father was very wise and he was able to uh, temper this down. And I've really found my strength in critical care. And again, I should give a bit of a background here. You see, um, there's a big difference between working in ICU and working in the general outpatient for a private hospital. You Outpatient, you have a lot of patients with common colds. They're going to be fine anyway, but, but there's a lot of worry. And um, the illnesses aren't as big. I was in Kenyatta for my internship, and I saw really, really sick people who needed help coming in. You know, uh, a lady called Lynette in her 20s couldn't walk. Uh, so many things, uh, different from uh, private in many ways. But ICU, all my patients need me. As in, without doctor's intervention, things are going to be really bad. And I made a decision that this is what I want to specialize in. But you didn't have that opportunity in the country because you don't have, uh, you know, it wasn't available. So I, I sort of uh, did my own. I, I, I've actually invested heavily in terms of learning, in terms of experience. I've more or less specialized in that, this one thing for the last 10 years plus. Uh, but it doesn't count because I needed to... You need to go back to school. I need to go back to school. And do an MED. So in truth is, I'm one of the most experienced critical care doctors. I have done a lot of, I mean, I've literally changed a couple of things in and uh, to better outcomes. But every time I want to give an opinion on the same matter, then maybe a, a young colleague who finished last, you know, maybe last year would come and tell me, eh, what is the basis? And, uh, you know, those, it's very frustrating that way. But, um, yeah, that's that's life sometimes. You have to, to copy that. It's, it's, it's an area I honestly, I honestly feel that uh, th- that's been one of those things that has been very frustrating. I, sometimes I feel I should go and do a master's degree in dermatology. <laughs> then I go and do. Uh, so I can have the paper to back what I'm doing. And that's that's been very, very frustrating because there's a lot that people can learn from me. And, in fact, I train a lot of young doctors. And from that training, I can see, like in this COVID season, it's really helped. Uh, many of these doctors, we've been able to now get them to a level where they can support patients' critical care and so on. Okay. Mm. What next for you, Dr. after RFH or? Uh, God's grace. Mm-hmm. God's grace. Uh, I, I generally don't uh, think in those lines. Um, I do the work that I'm doing now to the best of my ability and I increasingly increase capacity where we are. So I've uh, partnered with the team, uh, I don't know if I can mention the name, yeah, CareSoft. Um, to, uh, I've been looking at systems, IT systems. I love creating solutions. I've been looking at IT systems for um, a long time, and I came across uh, this one system called CareSoft during a uh, review of systems. And um, I approached them, and we've agreed now to work together to uh, make it the most robust system available. Already they've done tremendous work. It was very close, and I'm just adding a few things to make it the absolute best system. And I'm comparing that to Indian systems. I looked at U.S. systems and uh, now systems uh, here in Kenya. And it's definitely head and shoulders local system. It's It will work fantastic. It's already um, uh, in about uh, maybe 20-something or uh, 30 facilities already.
already so we'll um, we want to work on this see how much uh, better it can be and um, that's part of the things that I'm, I'm doing but my big role i pray that somehow i have a role in making kenya work whether it's in the health sector or in a bigger setting i i really pray that i will be one of those change agents that will bring this country to where it's supposed to be it doesn't have to be this bad could always be better could always be better mm. and i think obviously one of the changes that you've made and uh, um this is undisputable was you know your role in coming up with KMPDU the union the doctors union and changing the welfare of doctors and now um health is a major agenda the conversation on health is a major agenda and the doctors usually part now of, mm. of the conversations and part of the discussions on the table so at least that is one of them one area that I'd wish to contribute almost immediately and uh, it's a conversation we need to have now and uh, this is not healthcare workers out there uh, who are listening there's a culture that's creeping in and uh, I would wish that we nip it at the bud uh, it's a culture we imported from one of the asian countries where we put can i say um we put the revenue ahead of the service money first money first um that should have no role in healthcare completely a situation where you know very well for example this is not a case for an admission and you concoct something to justify an admission to admit knowing full well the reason is to meet an admission target you know this investigation is not needed you invent you you make that done because there is you know kickbacks there are kickbacks around it now for that by the way mercy you and i have to be deliberate about linking that practice to the authorities to ensure because that's criminal and i think it maddies there are many people who wrongly believe that healthcare workers do this in general it's not the case it's not true but the culture is becoming uh, is coming in and it's a culture we can't allow to take hold and the truth is it's almost becoming ubiquitous now because um, the people at the opd centers the small clinics across in a particular region um, almost all of them have a contact of someone who will give a kickback if they send for an admission it's it's happening we have to stop it because that is criminal mm-hmm. you, you, i mean i wouldn't allow my daughter to be taken through an unnecessary uh, x-ray, x-ray you know scan. or an admission you're giving drugs that are not needed because yeah. you know that will be fatal at some point mm-hmm. but not just that this is covid season i've seen a family that was being you know they're going to spend almost 100000 and i know how hard they've been hit by it. So basically we are stealing from these families to enrich people who already rich and I think that culture has to be stopped and I think the uh, immigration department really has to look at the people who've been given work permits in this country and what culture they're bringing in and let us be deliberate about it no matter their connections some of these guys we should send them back to their country and say you know this is Kenya Kenya we do things differently mm-hmm. uh, that's another in between thing that I'll be working on personally and I hope with some people as well mm-hmm. that's really a, a, a big issue because obviously it taints the entire in the health sector mm. and the professionals that are there because now when people lose faith in the people who are supposed to save and you know conserve the sanctity of life then it becomes a it's a problem um, absolutely but it's i also want to assure the people that it's not oh, like that always and i think there are conversations even amongst doctors mm-hmm. doctors don't like this mm-hmm. and um i think we will have something going very soon to deal with it conclusively okay mm. Thank you thank you Dr. Ri for your time thank you for sharing your thoughts your insights your experiences
in the healthcare space, in the healthcare leadership, and we definitely wish you the best. We'll be keeping tabs to see how this goes, and we hope that, as you said, we fix Kenya and we have a better Kenya because it doesn't always have to be like this. Mm. Thank you very much for your time. We have been speaking to Dr. Victor Ngani. Dr. Ngani is the founding chairman of the Kenya Medical Practitioners, Pharmacists, and Dentist Union. He is a critical care specialist, um, chess champion, a father who's passionate about bringing up family and bringing up the children to be the adults that we need as a society in future. Join us next time, same place, same time on Doctors and Must. Uh, you can always tweet me at Dr. Masi Korir. Let me know who you would want to be part of this conversation, who you want us to unmask, whose story you want to hear, because we'll always be looking for interesting doctors who are able to inspire you and who are able to you know, share with us their experiences. Until next time, God bless.